from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. The impacts of a deepening drought. The, the real spike in prices will come when we do start that rebuilding process. What it all means for one of the biggest cattle producing states in the country. USDA weighs possible changes to school meals and the dairy industry has some concerns. When you remove flavored milk from the school meals menu, you get less participation in the meals program. As we get a better picture of just what weeks of dryness mean for crops in South America. These numbers are still quite a bit higher than what the private estimates coming out of South America. We break down the latest supply demand numbers right now on AgDay. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. How have recent weather issues impacted South American crops? USDA putting numbers on paper in the latest supply demand report issued this week. Let's first get to the latest U.S. numbers and ending stocks. Now, USDA putting corn ending stocks higher thanks to a 25 million bushel reduction in corn for ethanol use, but exports were unchanged. Now for soybeans, the prediction is for lower crush and higher ending stocks, but no change to exports, so ending stocks are up 15 million. For wheat, supplies are largely unchanged, ending stocks are raised 1 million bushels there. Checking world ending stocks, that's where we start to see South America's output come into play. The agency putting corn stocks below expectations due to what's happening in Argentina, but that's offset by increases for the Philippines and Vietnam. Ending stocks are down just over a million tons. For soybeans, global production is reduced again due to Argentina, but also Ukraine. Exports are nearly unchanged. While for wheat, supplies are raised slightly on increases for Australia and China, offsetting a reduction from Ukraine. But world wheat ending stocks are still the lowest since 2016. Agnes Michelle Rook joins us now with a closer look at those South American numbers. And Michelle, Argentinian crops taking a hit in this latest report. That's right, Clint. With fairly benign domestic numbers, more of the trade's attention in the WASDI was on the South American production numbers and how USDA's numbers align with in-country estimates by their agencies and private firms. USDA left Brazilian production estimates at 125 million metric tons for corn and 153 million metric tons for beans. However, CONAB, Brazil's equivalent to USDA, came in with numbers before our report. They lowered corn production by 1.3 million metric tons to 123.7, which is under USDA. They raised their soybean estimate by 770,000 metric tons to a record 152.9 million metric tons, which is in line with USDA. The big cuts came in Argentina, though, as USDA was fairly aggressive, dropping corn production 5 million metric tons to 47 million. Soybean production was cut 4.5 million to 41 million metric tons. However, both the Rosario Grain Exchange and the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange, as you can see, are below those figures, with the soybean crop as low as 34.5 million metric tons. But that isn't the lowest estimate. These numbers are still quite a bit higher than what the private estimates coming out of South America. So I would, you know, that's typical what happens, Michelle. The government tends to slow walk at our government, at least. The private estimates get a little bit more aggressive. I would guess unless something, you know, changes dramatically, the crop will get a little bit smaller. If the weather holds, I don't think it's going to fall out of bed. Right now, there is some rain in the forecast next week. If that happens, that will hopefully help put a bottom in the size of that crop for them. McCormick says the market has been trading the Argentina weather problems for nearly six weeks. So he cautions producers the lower private estimates for Argentina may already be priced into the market. 
McCormick also says it will take a bigger South American crop story to keep moving soybeans and meal into new highs, especially with export business shifting from the U.S. to Brazil. And we'll talk about where prices may be headed in market analysis later in the newscast. The weather system across the Mississippi Valley and the Great Lakes is about to dump a lot of rain and snow. Meteorologist Chuck Heaver joins us with an update. Well, the big news today in the United States is going to be the wind. We've got massive amounts of wind pushing through the upper Midwest and the Great Lakes. We're going to have wind gusts up to 60 miles per hour around Chicago. Then things lighten up and you can see just as we calm down. But on top of that wind, we're going to have some precipitation, some severe weather potential damage and snow off to the northwest of Chicago. That slides through and wow, it's going to be an interesting day tomorrow. Well, okay. Now, we're throwing it back to old school this morning. Check out this video shared by Harvest Fest. That's a McCormick Deering binder, picking corn the old-fashioned way, one row at a time. They say the longer tongue was used to hitch a team of horses back in the day, so they just modified it a bit in order to use a tractor. And they say it still needs a bit more restoration work, but hey, it still works. Okay, I'll have your full forecast coming up. As we first told you yesterday, USDA is forecasting net farm income is expected to drop 16% this year. One of the big reasons, higher production expenses. The Economic Research Service predicting those expenses will increase by $18.2 billion overall, an increase of more than 4% from last year. Let's unpack this one graphic that holds a lot of information. Now, feed expenses in yellow, the largest single expense category. It's forecast to actually fall more than 5% from last year, but interest expenses are expected to rise more than 22%. That's after a 42% increase last year. Livestock and poultry expenses just below that, they could rise 14%. And labor costs in orange are also predicted to rise more than 7%, while feed and fertilizer expenses projected to decline. And those higher costs are one of the reasons why egg prices remain high, along with the ongoing battle against bird flu. Now some senators are calling for an acceleration of USDA's bird flu response. A bipartisan group of eight senators urging USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack to move faster to deploy $64 million in funding set aside to respond to the ongoing highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak. Now that's up $1 million from the last two years. Lawmakers are also seeking an APHIS update on the outbreak and indemnity payments to affected farmers. Meanwhile, the State Department of Agriculture officials are working with members of Congress to provide solutions for processors and producers through the Farm Bill. Now, one of the options is vaccinating the flock, which has a negative export implication. However, one State Secretary of Ag says it may be necessary as he says the status quo is just not acceptable. I mean, we cannot do this forever. That's just not, I mean, it's nine bucks for 18 eggs in, South, in Pierce, South Dakota. That's, that's not sustainable on the price side, and it's not sustainable on the, the public side. It's not sustainable on the producer side. It's just, we need to look for, for options to that because it's, it's not working now. Avian influenza has infected more than 58 million birds nationwide and contributed to a more than 30% jump in egg prices last year. USDA is also proposing updates to the school nutrition standards and the dairy industry is weighing in on possible changes to how milk is served. Currently some 30 million students eat school lunch. USDA is proposing more whole grains with flexibility for pasta or tortillas once a week. It's pushing to cut salt by up to 30 percent 
reduced gradually from now through 2029, and it's asking for feedback on changes to low-fat flavored milk. Now, one idea would leave milk as is. Another would limit low-fat flavored milk to just older students, eliminating it for elementary school-age kids. The goal is to reduce added sugars. Now, the International Dairy Foods Association says the end results will be fewer kids eating lunch. Studies have been done in schools in Colorado and New Mexico and Arizona and schools throughout the country. When you remove flavored milk from the school meals menu, you get less participation in the meals program and you get kids consuming less food. When you add it back, those numbers return. They rebound. You get more kids participating. You get them consuming more food so there's less waste. And why is that important if you're a parent? Because the kids are getting more nutrients, the nutrients that they need. Now he says the milk currently served in schools already meets the new proposal's sugar requirements, adding that flavored milk offers 13 essential nutrients. Now the Department of Ag is seeking more feedback via a 60-day comment period. It started this week. USDA also putting out a new orange crop production report calling for production to be down another 3% from last month with hurricanes and citrus screening helping to drive orange juice futures into record territory. Wednesday, futures at one point rallied up $8 per hundred on the March contract, now above $257. That's a new all-time high. The previous record was set back in 2016. What's driving that increase? A continually shrinking forecast for orange production in Florida. The new USDA report putting Florida all orange forecast at 16 million boxes. That's the lowest since 1934, and that's down a whopping 61% from last season. Hurricanes and the continued production erosion from citrus screening eating into those numbers. Futures are up more than 20% since the start of the year. Market reaction to Wednesday's Wazoo report was muted. We'll dig into the numbers next in analysis. And later, drought in the Southern Plains may help push cattle prices to near record highs. We'll see how Oklahoma plays into the mix ahead on Ag Day. Ag Day is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. A group of 25 consumers from 11 states is filing a lawsuit to block the planned merger between Kroger and Albertson grocery stores. It was filed in the U.S. District Court for Northern California. Now they argue the merger, quote, will be used to increase prices for groceries, decrease the quality of food, eliminate jobs, close stores, and offer less choice for consumers, end quote. The proposed merger was announced back in October. It is still under regulatory review. The numbers about Argentinian crops were key for traders midweek. Michelle Rook is back with more in this morning's Markets Now. Well, grains closed mostly higher after the WASDE report. John Heinberg, Total Farm Marketing, is joining us. Not a lot of fodder in the report, really, John, but when we look at South American numbers, is the trade kind of figuring now, the Argentina crops getting smaller, the Brazil crops getting bigger, or what do we have priced in? You know, I would say that, you know, with the Rosario Grain Exchange's numbers coming out there on the, on the afternoon, uh, 
on yesterday. Again, just showing those cuts in that crop and still showing the damage that's there. I think the market's still counting on that number to come down, even though the USDA is still a bit of a laggard to what the Argentina forecast is. But that size, that Brazil crop harvest starting to continue to pick up in terms of pace will easily outweigh those bushels. So that's why I probably didn't see much of a reaction in the market overall to that to the size of that crop overall for beans. Uh, so again, that's kind of what we're focused on right now. Again, what's happening in also that soybean meal market and how it's been trading seems like it's trying to top out a little bit here as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you if we already had that priced in because the meal market looks pretty tired. Yeah, it does. And again, we've had a heck of a run. We've hit some key levels of resistance over top, just can't seem to get through there. And again, we're maybe seeing the shuffling of the deck chairs in terms of where the demand's coming from with those Brazilian beans coming online. And the market's probably getting to a very fairly comfortable stage between both crops at this time frame, which will obviously keep some pressure on U.S. beans, especially with considering the premium that we're still holding over those South American bushels. Right. So corn, really, the only surprise was that we didn't cut exports. Do you think we're going to need to do that in subsequent reports? I think down the road, that is something we're going to still be watching for. Obviously, we're well behind the pace in terms of the shipment level, the sales level. This week's export inspections numbers were pretty dismal, even though the bean number was good because probably taking the port space away from corn. You know, that window is picking up. I think that's why they kind of kicked the can down the road here a little bit, that we are seeing sales step up now. We hopefully will see those shipments pick up here shortly. But if we really don't get something going here, those further reductions in that demand are going to have to come out. Right. So either demand or is it going to be like problems with the Brazilian safrina corn crop? That's the only thing that could get us above these resistance areas. Very much so. Again, watching the planning pace out there and when that window could be, when that crop has to finish out, could be a big key going into the summer. All right. Thanks for joining us, John Heinberg with Total Farm Marketing and more Ag Day coming up. To discuss marketing strategies, call 800-334-9779. Ag Day is brought to you by Duracade Viptera. Meteorologist Chuck Heaver joining us here to take a look at our national forecast. Not only do we have a storm pushing through kind of the upper Midwest into the Northeast, but a lot of wind with this thing. Yeah, and that's actually going to be the big story. Some thunder, yeah, but we're going to see big time winds gusting upwards of 60 miles per hour close to Chicago. Here's your forecast. Okay, let's take a look at the wind gust forecast in the Midwest. You can see over here near the Chicagoland area, we are going to have winds close to 60 miles per hour in terms of gusts and easily sustained winds 30 miles per hour. So there's a marginal risk for severe weather associated with that. And on top of all this wind, we are going to throw in some pretty heavy precipitation in the form of rain and snowfall off to the northwest of Chicago, snowfall amounts, and then we're down to the south and east where low pressure is, and we're going to see a potential for thunderstorms, and that slowly works its way through. And then on Friday, things calm down, the winds calm down, but we could see some lake enhancement across the Great Lakes just in light forms with some precipitation of rain and scattered snow showers. Definitely not out of the question. Down to the southeast, you can see the severe weather along through Atlanta and heavy amounts of rain accumulate down there. You can see on the precipitation forecast, large amounts of rain down to the south and east and then in the form of snow off to the northwest of Chicago. You can see the snow amounts here in purple, three to six, maybe higher amounts in some locations with that storm. All the cold air is bottled up in 
Canada, and so for us, most of the country is going to remain mild. In fact, you're going to see high temperatures in the Midwest next week around uh, Valentine's Day. We're going to see temperatures in the 50s, which is just incredible. No big, large air intrusions except later in the week of on next Thursday. So there you go. Chicago at 42 tomorrow. San Antonio 73 for the high today. And then tonight things will chill off 26 in Chicago. And then tomorrow we're looking at temperatures. Yeah, not so bad throughout the country. If you're looking for warm air, you can go down to Miami 85 Flagstaff, Arizona. 38 degrees, low 22. Sunny skies, partly sunny in Pueblo, Colorado, 36 and a low of 11. And Raleigh, North Carolina, a high 70, low 56. Drought forced significant cow liquidation in Oklahoma last year. Up next, we'll see what that could mean for prices. And later, scientists discover some favorite foods of the Neanderthal. What they were eating might surprise you. Drover's Report on Ag Day is brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim because cattle first is a remark only made remarkable by you, producers and veterinarians across the country. When it comes to drought and cattle production, Oklahoma has been hit hard. Livestock marketing specialist Daryl Peel of Oklahoma State University says the January 1st inventory of all cattle and calves in Oklahoma was down 11.5% year over year, down to 4.6 million head. Now he says the state is still the second largest beef cow state after Texas, but is now just fractionally larger than Missouri. And he doesn't believe the liquidation is over yet. He says drought conditions continue across Oklahoma. And he says with the latest report showing the number of replacement heifers is down, rebuilding will take longer. And that's why he thinks that cattle prices could break records later this year. The, the real spike in prices will come when we do start that rebuilding process and we do start retaining heifers that's what squeezes slaughter in the short run. That We're not sure when that's going to happen. It still depends on the drought, but it could certainly start this year. And, uh, you know, it, it's either late 2023 or into 2024 when we get that real uh, uh, spike in prices. And, and Don's absolutely right. We, there's no doubt we will see record prices for both feeder cattle and fed cattle. Peel adds that during the first five weeks of this year, the combined Oklahoma auction volume of coal cows is up just under 50% year over year. And he says hay supplies remain very tight. A rancher near the Arizona border with Mexico is charged with first degree murder after a man from Mexico was shot dead on his ranch. The Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office arresting 73 year old George Allen Kelly. Now he's being held on a $1 million bond. Investigators identifying the victim as 48 year old Gabriel Cuen Butamilla. They say he lived just south of the border in Nogales, Mexico. The address where the death happened is the same one listed in public records for Kelly's Cattle Ranch. Authorities haven't provided information on a possible motive. The Daily Mail reporting the victim had a history of illegally crossing the border and had been deported back to Mexico multiple times. Well, if you love seafood, it may be in your genes. Researchers discover an early human connection to the sea next. In the Country on Ag Day is brought to you by Pivot Bio. What if you had the nitrogen you need already on seed? Pivot Bio is the first company to apply nitrogen on seed. The nitrogen you need, now on seed, from Pivot Bio. Learn more at pivotbio.com. 
Sometimes you may wonder as you sit down for a meal, what did our ancestors eat? Well, a new study has found some answers when it comes to folks who lived a really long time ago, Neanderthals. Archaeologists uh, excavating a site near Lisbon, Portugal, discovered Neanderthals living 90,000 years ago had a taste for crabs. They say they regularly caught them, roasted them on coals, and ate them. Now, they report finding the remains of shellfish like mussels and clams, but also scraps from the brown crab were particularly high in number. Researchers say the finding is significant, not just because it helps us know what they ate, but because it helps debunk the notion that a taste for seafood, which is rich in omega-3 fatty acids important for brain growth, was one of the unique factors that made our own species smarter than other prehistoric humans, such as Neanderthals. And that's all the time we have this morning. From all of us here at Agda, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Thanks for watching.